an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, TV legend Brakeman Bill is still chugging along in his 90s. My audience, a great deal of them were, uh, they were latchkey kids, came home from school and there was nobody there. So they went through the TV on and there I was. And then, from the archives, when local newspapers were delivered by paper boys and paper girls from the local paper shack. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And at 6.36, our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us for his Friday morning visit all over the map. This is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, Felix, you have an update on your crusade (laughs) to save the National Archives here in Seattle. And uh, I guess the only problem now is money. Well, that's always been the problem. Um, so, yeah, the National Archives near Sandpoint, of course. We spent the last year and a half covering the story of a federal government plan to sell that building and move the materials to California and Missouri. They said the photos and documents were underutilized. The facility needed millions of dollars of upgrades, but there was no public process. Now, of course, a bunch of things happened that halted the sale. A grassroots campaign by museums and tribes, a lawsuit by Attorney General Bob Ferguson, and then finally a reversal by the Biden administration. Now, yesterday, Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, and Don Young, Republican of Alaska, introduced a small piece of legislation that would change the law that led to the sale. This change would require the federal government to consult with any federally recognized Indian tribe who might be affected by the sale. Um, And they're supposed to do that anyway. I mean, there's an executive order back in the 90s saying that you have to consult with tribes about things that affect them. So anyway, this law is a good thing because the priceless tribal records from the Pacific Northwest and Alaska are stored at Sandpoint. And the tribes are due a lot of the credit for the grassroots campaign that shut down the sale. Now, an identical bill was introduced in the Senate in April, also bipartisan, with Republican Lisa Murkowski joining with uh, Cantwell and Murray here in Washington, Murkowski from Alaska. Now, there's no timeline yet for when either bill might pass, but this is apparently one of the few things Republicans and Democrats can agree on in the Northwest, and that's a good thing. Now, uh, whenever I talk to National Archives officials about Seattle, they always bring up the need for serious funding to upgrade that facility. They think it's something like north of $100 million dollars. So when I spoke with Representative Jayapal yesterday, I asked whether or not there's support for getting those funds. I feel like if we can get the facility saved, if we can pass this bill, that will get us a long way to then working together in a bipartisan way to allocate the resources that are needed. And frankly, it's a wake up call around that, too. Why do we wait until the very last minute to find these kinds of resources? Um, it, It had not been flagged for any of us that these things were needed, that it would potentially lead to the sale of the building. And I think we need to invest more resources into preserving these historical treasure troves is what they are and making them available to everybody. Now, National Archives officials and GSA, who actually owns the building, it's very complicated. They might quibble with the fact that that this hadn't been brought to anybody's attention before. But I just think it's a good thing that we have our lawmaker here in Seattle looking to finding funding for this. So that's that's great. Um, I also think it's the tribes who hold a lot of the political power to get what that facility ultimately needs. So more to come, of course, on that. I have one more little update on a piece we covered last week when you weren't here, Dave. Mm-hmm. There's an odd little building on Denny Way just east of where the Elephant Car Wash once stood. It's octagonal. It's brick. You'd never know by looking at it that, that it was once an amazing 1930s signal brand gas station on the side of, of Highway 99. 
This was in the time before the Battery Street Tunnel was built. It was like right alongside the 1930s freeway. So the big news is that triangle-shaped property is now on the market as of, I think, yesterday. Hmm. It's about a tenth of an acre. You can get your 401k funds, Dave. It looks like you could build a structure there somewhere between 240 and 440 feet tall, so a Yikes. tall, skinny building. Now, the assessor values the land around $3 million, but the price on the flyer says negotiable. Um, so are, now, are you rooting for this building to be replaced, or are you trying to save this one, too? I'm neutral on this. It's private property. When people own private buildings, I really, you know, I care about public buildings that we all own a stake of, right? It's a, and if you can persuade a, a private developer to do something that you think is good, that's fine. But I think, no, I, I, this is the marketplace, right? But I'm right. just worried that the timing of the sale is not a coincidence. <laughs> I wonder if they thought, oh, no, the gargoyle guy is on to us, and they quickly... <laughs> <laughs> threw together a flyer and got it well, up there to try to get this thing sold. skulking around it, taking well, uh, pictures? Oh, we had a big story. You, you were out of town last week, but we had a huge, there's a big bunch of photos at my Northwest of this, the history of this building. It was this amazing, <laughs> crazy gas station. It was uh, it was sponsored by the Tarzan radio program. The fuel had the power of Tarzan. I mean, people uh-huh. loved this place. It was a show place, but totally I forgotten see, so what now. you're saying is it's an interesting coincidence that uh, yes. within a week of you <laughs> broadcasting your interest in the building, it suddenly went on yes. the market. Yeah, the egotistical part of me <laughs> likes to think that we I, – I think it's a coincidence. I think the flyer has probably been in the works. Are there any archives been, in that building? Uh, it's, I, you know, I emailed the realtor yesterday to ask if I could take a look on the inside. And I, of course, they haven't responded yet for some reason. I don't know why they won't respond well, to my emails. Well, if there were archives in it last week, I bet they're gone now. Yeah. So Anyway, yeah. just get a look at it while you can before it goes away. History is always on the move around here. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Dave. Serving greater Seattle. Welcome to our happy birthday party, our 20th year on the air, and welcome to the last show. For some kids, summer vacation used to mean sitting around and watching a whole lot of TV. And one of the things the kids around here used to watch was the Brakeman Bill Show on Channel 11. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, caught up with Brakeman Bill, who is still chugging along in his 90s. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, you know, I heard from my brother yesterday morning there was a rumor spreading on social media. I'm not going to repeat it, but it inspired me right away to reach out to Bill McLean. He's better known to at least some portion of the Cairo audience as Brakeman Bill, host of the Brakeman Bill Show on Channel 11 for 20 years, from 1955 to 1975. That audio we heard at the top was from the very last show, the only one that was recorded, of course. Now, on that show, he played cartoons, he drew funny sketches, and he engaged in witty repartee with a certain black sock puppet named Crazy Donkey, who was voiced and operated by the energetic and imaginative Warren Reed. Now, Bill's doing well. He'll be turning 94 in a few weeks. He's still married to Jean, his high school sweetheart. They met at Lincoln High School in Tacoma many years ago. Now, Brakeman Bill wore overalls and a striped railroad hat on the set of the show, and he ran a model train called the Cartoon Special. Bill says he had very devoted fans, and even in his street clothes, he'd get recognized. I still do. Everyone's else, I'll get a double take or a triple take. He looks familiar. Once in a great while, says, aren't you break but Bill? I say yes. Now, one thing, my audience, a great deal of them were, uh, they were latchkey kids, came home from school, and there was nobody there. So they went through the TV on, and there I was. I had the afternoon show, JP had the, the morning show, and uh, uh, I was their surrogate parent. Yeah, you heard Brakemanville mention J.P. Patches, who hosted a kid's show on Cairo TV for 23 years. Now, that surrogate parent effect that Bill described was something J.P. had experienced, too. 
there was something special about watching someone on local TV and then being able to see him in real life, too. I, I remember that in the 70s. It was very strange. It means a lot of love between the local host and local fans. I was at a barber shop, uh, and one of came up to me and started crying and said, you don't realize how much you bet to be in a kid's like me. We were so alone, and all we had was you. And she bought my haircut. That's what I went to pay for it. Uh, and that was not unusual. A lot of times, I get people give me big hugs, you know, and uh, one of my uh, fan clubs were a bunch of loggers up at Morton. <laughs> Figured that one out. Frat houses at the universities had Brinkman Bill fan clubs. <laughs> Different era. And when I spoke with Bill yesterday, we had a wide-ranging conversation about growing up in Tacoma during the Depression. You know, he had a train set on his TV show, but he was as a kid, he was his family couldn't afford a train set as a kid. Now, we talked about the history of the show, the thousands of personal appearances he made over the years doing fundraisers for local PTAs, and the live ads he did for stuff like Bosco chocolate syrup or treetop apple juice. I also learned Bill McLean did morning drive radio uh, as sportscasting in Ellensburg and then Yakima in the late 40s and early 50s before moving back home to Tacoma to work in radio and TV at Channel 11 and Channel 11's radio station, KTNT. Now, that's where he was working as a camera operator when he got the nod to take over the TV show after the original host, a guy named Engineer Walt, played by Dave Richardson, came down with polio. This was the mid-1950s, after all. Now, the show, with the railroad theme and the model trains, was based on a similar show in Los Angeles. Now, that led me to a specific question about the wardrobe. Do you still have the overalls and the hat somewhere? I do. When's the last time you put them on? <laughs> I couldn't remember. It was been so many years. I think the last one, they dedicated a locomotive on in five. I showed up for that one. The last hurrah. You know, the last hurrah for the TV show was more than 46 years ago, April 1st, 1975. Brakeman Bill blames that, at least partially, on someone you wouldn't suspect, Mr. Rogers. I hate to say this. I thought Mr. Rogers is a wimp. He just came across so, so soft. And not to knock him, but uh, he was one of the guys that, that took me off the air. The PBS people decided that live entertainers like me, live hosts, kids shows, who were selling bicycles on the air to kids that couldn't afford a bike, and they were selling breakfast cereals that rot their teeth out, and uh, toys commercials that poor kids couldn't afford. A bunch of hooey. So they, they passed an X4 rule with the broadcasters. I could no longer do live commercials. That was the end of my show. Yeah, the thought was that guys like Brakeman Bill and J.P. Patches, anyone who had that kind of relationship with viewers had too much influence over young minds. You know, when the, when the surrogate parent promoted some toy or food yeah. product on his show, the kids in the audience just took it as a command to buy. Um, so when those commercials went away because of changes, not to the law, but to the National Association of Broadcasters Code, which was very powerful in 1973, and that was a change that people like Mr. Rogers and Action for Children's Television had called for since the early 70s. That revenue that supported the programs went away, too. So uh, Breakman Bill hung on for a few more years. J.P. Hang, hung on for a few more years beyond that. So, so he's still going strong at 93. Breakman Bill is no wimp, that's for sure. But his wife, Jean McLean, did let me in on a little secret. You know, you're lucky that you called him because I had him out in the yard working, and he hates yard work. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do the yard work, and he got away with not doing it, so. (laughs) 
So, I mean, they're both in their 90s. They both sound really vigorous. They live on their own. I mean, they're, you know, they're doing their yard work outside. These, these are people who have somehow found the secret of uh, the magical secret of, of long-term health. So, um, you know, uh, Warren Reed, the voice in the arm of Crazy Donkey, passed away back in 1986. He was really sort of the, the wacky, crazy center of the show. The energy between those two guys is what made the show work. Um, you know, we're not likely to see local kids shows on TV ever again just because of those rules, because of just the dynamics, the economics of it. The most recent attempt was in the early 90s when Bill McLean was promotions director at Channel 11. He helped get a show on the air called Ranger, Charlie, and Roscoe. Um, that did last a few years, and the final co-host was MJ McDermott, who does the weather on Channel 13 these days. So um, I thought, Dave, you could do a kid show host maybe on C-SPAN. Like, hey, kids, it's time to watch <laughs> the select right. committee on Benghazi again, and yeah. Sully could be dressed up as Choke Point the Clown, kind of providing that kind of uh, sort of antic <laughs> yeah. comic relief. That's true. We could we could turn this into a children's <laughs> show. We really could. I think, I mean, that's how I became, my, my uh, unhealthy obsession with local media began with shows like Breakman Bill, and that's where you got to get, you get them early, right? You get them hooked early, and then they yeah. have viewers for life. So, Well, I'll tell you, my obsession, I mean, I didn't grow up here, but Bosco was the big thing on children's <laughs> shows, and I still have... <laughs> A jar of Bosco in my pantry. Wow, is it vintage the, Bosco or recent Bosco? No, well, well, <laughs> I don't think my uh, 1954 jar of Bosco would be uh, wow uh, safe to eat now. But uh, no, I do have a recent Bosco. The form is not quite the same, but it is there anytime I feel I need the uh, indulgence. And it was all because of the uh, children's show I grew up with. But that's that's great that he's doing so well at the age of 94. And I think I don't think it's any secret. I think yard work does keep you alive. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I hate yard work. So anyway, it's been nice knowing you, Dave. <laughs> now, I, I'm always trying to help our promotions people out, you know, trying to get them to embrace the whole history thing here on Seattle's yes. Morning News. So if we have time for this, Breakman Bill helped me come up with just this little announcement. Hi, gang. This is Breakman Bill asking you to be sure and listen to my pal Felix Manel on Cairo Radio 97.3. He's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love Breakman Bill. I love those guys. Miss J.P. Patches, just a bunch of really nice people who we were lucky enough to have on the air here locally in the Puget Sound for decades. Felix Spinell, you can find all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, journalism has changed, and so has the delivery system that once relied on paper shacks. News that comes to us fresh every day, gathered and written and printed by the men and women of the press. Get your morning paper. Morning you know what this scratchy sound means. It means Dave Ross <laughs> is reporting. I'm just kidding. I, that's a cheap shot since he's gone. Newsreel footage means one thing. Felix Spinell is here. He's entered the studio to give us a piece of history. Yeah, the story this morning was inspired by a story we did a few weeks ago about the old Princess Marguerite, that cruise mm-hmm. ship that went back and forth between Seattle and Detroit. My mother, Seattle by the Victoria. way, loved that. Oh, I'm so she glad. Says that's her childhood right, right there. How's, what demographic is your mother in, Colleen? She about, your mother's about 50 years old probably, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, on the My Northwest version of that story, a bunch of people commented they were paper boys for the Seattle Times and got to write on the Princess Marguerite. And I've wanted to do the story for a while about the old paper shacks. Mm-hmm. These were these plywood buildings by the side of the road that were all over the place back in the, from the 50s up to the 90s. There was many as 200 of them around the county back at their peak, but they've all been gone a long time. The time stopped using kids to deliver the paper back in 2000. But I would guess there's probably thousands of former paper boys and paper girls around. I tracked down one and went out to Lake Forest Park a few days ago and heard about the paper shack. So if we did an urban archaeology dig here, what would we be likely to find where the paper shack once stood? A lot of rubber bands. <laughs> lots and lots of rubber bands. Extra, extra, read all about it. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Extra.
Yeah, I'm Kevin Van Hollebeck. I was a Seattle Times newspaper carrier from 1969 through 73. We're in an area that uh, is in Lake Forest Park right now. It's right next to the water tower. It was an eight by 12 building with uh, uh, one door on the front, had benches built into the side with large overhangs so that everybody could uh, keep the newspapers dry. Easily tip tippable if people had the right inclination. Ours got tipped over at least once, I remember. And we worked at it out of several weeks until they came in and tipped it over the right way. That's the little paper boy on the main street of USA. Those were the kind of locations that you tried to find that were away from people. You know, like for some, some strange reason, a lot of people didn't want to get real excited about little paper kids coming every day you know, close, close to their, close to their house. So, so they would kind of locate them away from centers of population, if you know what I mean. My name is Richard Dick Calavota, and I worked for the Times as a paper boy from 1950 to 55, and an assistant district manager and manager from 1955 to 2000. This is Sandra Walker, the author of Little Merchants, about youth delivering newspapers in a bygone era. There wasn't an adult supervisor there at each one of those shacks. That makes sense. No, of course there wouldn't be. The kid who got a copy of Playboy, and they'd do pinups in their shack. Smoking, so prevalent. So it was not unusual for these kids age 13, 14, start smoking. You used to have to carry a can of spray paint around the same color as paper stations. Most of them were green, uh, paper sack green. So when they do their little graffiti things on the side of their sack, you have to block them out. Little stuff like that, you know, and that's nothing, nothing major, you know. Around the 4th of July, when people had smoke bombs, you'd light them and, and uh, take a paper boy and, and put him in, close the door, and then stuff it through one of the knot holes. I was never one of the stuffers. I was the guy inside choking on, on the smoke. We had a quarter of a million circulation, and you depended on 3,000 12 to 16-year-old kids out of 300 paper station locations to make a multi-million dollar newspaper operate, and it worked. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? That's the little paper boy. So it sounds like these paper boys or newspaper delivery, what was the term he used? It was a more PC term. Oh, paper carriers is one of the, the uh, terms that's more generic. But yeah, pa- they're all paper. There were a few paper girls, but it's mostly yeah. paper boys. Sounds I don't like they were pretty gangster. Smoking, pornography, Yeah, newspapers. I couldn't find any evidence of any gambling or prostitution, okay. but there was sort of basic kind of mis- mischievous 12 to 16-year-old boys. And that's the amazing thing, that this, this major multi-million dollar company, the Seattle Times, yeah. depended on 3,000 kids to deliver the bulk of their product seven days a week. What a weird business model and the fact that it worked for as many decades as it did it's crazy you know the one thing there's no photographs of any paper shacks there were 200 of them around the county i've never been able to track down a photograph i'd love it if a listener had a picture of themselves as a paper boy or paper girl back in the day send it in i'd love to see it i'm felix bonnell at cairo radio in seattle follow me on twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com and please join me again for the next episode of the resident historian This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.